I'm actually really excited about this book. Um, not about giving it, but about receiving it. Um, so we're actually going to talk almost zero today about the text. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to read just a few verses because I like before um, we get into the nitty gritty um, of anything, it's so important for us to know um, the people we're dealing with, um, the context of things. Um, otherwise, the message can be just used however we want it to be. Um, but I think Corinthians is going to be a really, um, a, a really exciting one to do because this book is so relevant to our times, not just like, like in every way, COVID, Black Lives Matter, um, spiritual elitism, um, all like super opinionated people, um, polarity, all of that stuff. Corinthians is all, all about that. So um, we will read that. For those of you who are willing, as usual, thank you, Mary and Nick. Anybody and Levi, anyone willing to put your, your cameras on would be great. You're not being projected to Facebook. Um, it's so appreciated because, like I said, it's super ox. Um, but that'd be great. Um, <laughs> okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we're going to read from the text today. Um, because there is so much to say um, about Corinth and about the Corinthians and about Paul's specific relationship to the Corinthians, um, because it's a complicated one. Um, let me just make Abuna um, the superstar. And there's Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Um, there we go. Okay. Um, so for those who just dropped in, we're going to do a background to Corinthians first, because all like the whole context of the letter really needs us to understand what this is this group the corinthians are a very special people to saint paul um and if you didn't know that then the tone of the letter um might throw you off because this is a letter telling people off um, so it is not like a friendly, like, you guys are so cute. I'm so happy for you. And you no, he is like, let me lay down the law. Um, and if you don't know how deep the relationship is between Paul and the Corinthians, then he just sounds nasty. Right. And so, um, to me, this is so relevant. I was talking to somebody recently and I was saying, you know, it's funny how somebody that I don't know can come and tell me that they've done the most atrocious thing. And I'm just like, okay, cool. Like, like it doesn't, it doesn't phase me, right? But when it's somebody like super close to me, the same thing could get me really worked up because the relationship is closer, it's deeper. And so there's a different bond you feel and there's a different concern you feel, right? In the same way that a parent, when they hear about their child doing something messed up, reacts very differently, right? Than they do if it was just some guy down the road, 
right? So it's, it's, you've got to keep that in mind as we're dealing with this. Otherwise, you might find that Paul is just really mean um, and he's not trying to, to do that. So St. Paul loves this church because he taught them personally. There's churches he heard of, churches he visited, but he is the one who like legit laid down the law. So please know that this epistle, unlike Romans, is not going to be um, theology heavy um, in terms of doctrine. It's going to be theology heavy in terms of practice. How does it look like to live the gospel as opposed to what are the things that we believe? So I hope that's easier for, for a lot of us. So he's taught them personally. And there was confusion with them about things that he had taught, um, mostly about moral issues, because 1 Corinthians is not actually 1 Corinthians. It's very clear when we get to chapter 5 that he's written a letter before this. We just don't have that letter. Um, and so it seems that the, that the Corinthians had written to him confused about sexual morality issues. Um, and so actually St. Paul had written back to them, and then he hears back that they're not doing anything of what he said, and he goes livid because there's some messed up things happening over there um, that we're going we're gonna to just touch superficially today and get into as we move along. Um, so he's writing this letter when things had erupted and everything hit the fan, <laughs> okay? So this was a hardcore messed up time um, in Corinth. And the major underlying problem of the Corinthians, as we get into this, is one of unity. They were divided. They were very divided. A very divided people based on class, social status, okay, um, and on spirituality. You had people that felt they were, they were deep. Um, this is Corinth in the background, by the way. That's pretty deep, huh? Um, and so it's... Um, they have these lines and they have social status and it's come into the church. Okay, and this is one of the reasons why, why St. Paul is going to be so worked up. And their issues show that they didn't get what it meant to be a follower of the crucified Christ. Okay, that's why the subtitle of this series was, was Living the Cruciform Life of Love because that's going to be the, the main underlying argument for St. Paul in this, in this uh, epistle. And another issue, so there was unity and not knowing how to live, um, was about spirituality. Not only was there classism from a social status, but there was also classism from a spiritual status among the Corinthians. Um, and about the work of the Holy Spirit within the group, of people flaunting spiritual gifts and feeling that if they got a particular gift, it meant they were something special and above the cut from everybody else. Um, and so St. Paul is going to go ballistic um, at those people, <laughs> so brace yourselves. And the overarching theme is going to be what a community of God living in the Spirit should look like. And that's why I think it's so relevant, okay? Because you've got to remember that these letters that we sometimes just read as blah, 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 are insights into what the first church looked like. So it's very comforting, first of all, to know that they had the same problems that we have. Um, but it's also very helpful for us to say, how did the apostles, the ones who actually knew Christ, what was their answer and how did they deal with these issues? Um, I don't know that we always think about it in that way. So, um, like I said, we're going to go through just all background. Next week, we're going to start digging into the text. 
um, because there's a lot to say. There's a lot of cultural things we need to understand. Otherwise, the language and terminology might might not um, not affect us the way it should. So Corinth um, was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. So those are those random cities that we can the deacons never pronounce right when they're when they're up there on the the Mangalei in the pulpit. Um, it's called Achaia. Um, and actually one of the cities that we're going to deal with is called Syncria, which no one ever gets right when they're reading it. Um, but uh, Achaia today is southern, all of southern and central modern-day Greece. Okay, so Corinth today is, is in Greece if you want to visit it after COVID. So it sat at the foot of the immense Acrosynth, which I want to show you. Um, how do I share... Microsoft Word. It's not showing up on my list of things to share. Okay, I'll have to send it after. I had a nice picture of the Acrosynth because it's really, really, really beautiful. Um, I don't know, this will help. Nope, because I have a green screen. Sorry. Okay, my bad, guys. Um, the Acrosynth is this rugged limestone mountain. If you just, let me actually, I'll type it into the... Uh, here and then anybody who wants to google it can can see it um and so it's, it's beautiful so i wanted to show it to you because it's it's really helpful sometimes to get a sense of the people right if somebody was like oh i like for example when i got sent to serve in hawaii the the majesty of of what what hawaii looks like does something to you right like it it, it affects the the environment affects the the tone of everything so this is this two thousand foot high towering mountain that still towers over the city um, and Corinth was an interesting place because Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, okay? And then it was basically in ruins, ruins. but then it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC, um, and it became eventually a very important city. But when it was rebuilt, because it had been like ransacked and taken down, this affects the story. This is not just random knowledge. Um, it was built up by freedmen, okay, people who were slaves that had been freed, um, carpenters, worksmen. It was actually a free-for-all because in most cities, um, you inherited your status from your family, right? You were a senator, you were rich, you were a patron, you were whatever. And so in Corinth was a place where you had the opportunity to go big. And so you had a lot of opportunists that were moving there. And so you have this whole big smorgasbord of, in Corinth of different kinds of people, of different kinds of classes, and everybody trying to climb the ladder, okay? And this ladder climbing, as we're going to see, enters the church. That's why I'm talking about it, because it's part of the whole culture, right? In the same way, for example, today, I'm sometimes a little bit critical personally, that I feel like we start treating church corporate style because our culture is corporate. Right? So I'm trying to draw these, these analogies, say this is what's going on in the city, and sometimes what happens in the city enters into the church. And we have to be very careful. Um, now, Corinth had a population of about 80,000 uh, people, which is pretty big, but Corinth had a really bad reputation. Okay, So Corinth, um, people talked about Corinth. Actually, the expression, I don't know if you guys have heard this, those of you in America, because you guys live there, but the rest of us have, where we're like, oh, don't get Americanized, right? That, that's a thing outside of America. Um, and it used to be even more in the past. Now everyone is Americanized. But um, 
in in uh, even in, in Arabic, there's an expression yet amrak, right, which literally means to Americanize. There was the equivalent about Corinth. There was actually a thing called "Oh, you've been Corinthianized," um, and it had the reputation of like Sin City, like Vegas. Okay, especially because at the top of that acrosynth that we just talked about was a gigantic temple for Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Um, she had other functions, but one of the major things was the sex cult around Aphrodite. Okay, um, it was a very diverse city, um, and it didn't, it wasn't every man's city. And they even had Roman expressions about that, Greek expressions about that. Um, do 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 do. Now Corinth was also on something called an isthmus. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. But what that is, consider it's like a land bridge. Okay? So it's a land bridge that connects two big pieces of land. Why did that matter? Why are we bothering to talk about that? Because as this narrow land bridge, it was an incredibly important place for trade. Because the journey around the land was super long. So people would shortcut through Corinth. Why does that matter to our story? Because now it became a major cosmo city. Okay? It is a link between east and west of all these trades. So every kind of culture is meeting in Corinth. It's like New York City culturally. Okay? And so that really, really matters. Because if you look at New York, they're the image of sophistication. Right? And if you're rich in NYC, you're, you're important. Right? And so this is the kind of thing that's going on um, in this city, and it's such a big deal. Um, and so they've got temples everywhere. It's a cosmos city, like we said. Um, and social status was a major thing, as we said, in this city. Um, and as we said, elitism could be a problem. I was going to show you a map. It turns out that that fails, so I can't show you the map, because I want to show you what the isthmus is looks like i can't say it um so if you want to look up a map of corinth go for it. i even had a cool city layout that i was really excited to show you guys because i felt really sophisticated preparing it um but too bad so sad my ego is broken um so corinth had become so important that it was it was third in line to first rome second alexandria and third was corinth okay in in the world that we're living in so this is a big deal and that might even be one of the reasons why Paul went there, right? Of saying, here's, here's, here's the opportune place to preach the gospel, um, like where you've got a, you've got a, big, a big group. Um, but again, because of the nature of this city, there are a lot of non-elite who live there. These are your craftsmen, right? Um, and so Paul would have felt, would have fit in really well with that class of people because he was a tent maker, right? So he was not on the rich side of things. Um, and so now we can take a, a look at Paul's mission. So the mission of St. Paul to Corinth is actually described in Acts 18. Um, Acts is a really cool book to use alongside the epistles because Acts tells a lot of the stories that are the background to the epistles about where they went and when in, 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 the, in the journey. Um, and so we know from Acts 18 that St. Paul spends 18 months straight there. That's why he's super close, right? So even, even for me, just to make this a little bit more personal, like when I was living in California for those seven, six, seven years, um, there's only a couple of churches that I stayed that long, and those are the churches that I had the, like, 
the biggest bond with, right? Because you're seeing them every single day, right? Abuna Joseph, to put it in perspective, for those of you from SMSM, he's been here for like two years now, right? And so think of those bonds. When you've seen somebody every single day, every single week for that long, you forge something, right? So this is why St. Paul's got something really deep there. Um, so St. Paul goes to Corinth, um, and we know that he's somewhere there in the range of the years 50 to 52 AD um, because of a reference that is made in Acts 18 to a proconsul named Gallio, which we're going to talk about in a moment, um, because Gallio is actually corroborated in the Roman Corinth history because he's in an inscription found at Delphi um, in the year, from the year 52 AD. Okay? Um, why am I bothering to tell you what year? Not just because it, it's, it's, it's cool, but also because we're talking about a period that's only 19 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord. And so the things that are happening in here are really cool to notice. The practice of Eucharist, what worship looks like, what the Holy Spirit is doing. These are things that we're getting into really early, okay? Um, and so Acts tells us that Paul had went there after having very little success in Athens. He met there with two people that are familiar to us from the, the Romans Bible study just fin finished, Aquila and Priscilla, because this is being written before Romans. And so remember in Romans, we talked about how Claudius had kicked out the Jews from Rome. Well, that's what sent Aquila and Priscilla over to Corinth. And they happened to be tent makers too, which is probably why St. Paul hit it off really well with them. Um, so Paul in Corinth was doing his typical thing. Paul, his normal standard practice when he would go preach somewhere was, I'm going to first go to the synagogue. Typically, he would be rejected there, okay, by the, by the Jews that were there. So he'd go to the synagogue, that would fail. Um, and then he would uh, start targeting... Um, the Gentiles. I lost where I am in my notes. Um, so then he, he would go out the, the Gentiles. So Acts tells us that there was a certain God-fearer. So a God-fearer, just so you know, because it sounds like they're just saying, oh, somebody who reverences God. No, God-fearer means something um, in, that, in the first century. God-fearers were non-Jews who were very sympathetic to the Jews and actually to some extent, believed in Judaism, but hadn't taken the formal step of becoming an actual Jew and getting circumcised. It's almost basically like a catechumen who comes to everything but doesn't take that step to get baptized and so doesn't officially label himself or herself as a Christian. Okay? So there's a certain Roman, and it was probably because Romans like didn't look well on Jews. So to them, it's like, let me just keep this affiliation without becoming one. Okay? Um, so there's a certain God-fearer named Titus um, and another synagogue official named Crispus and another person who's probably from the synagogue named Sosthenes that we, who, who Paul just mentioned. Um, and many Gentile Corinthians, Acts tells us, became believers and were baptized. And as usual, if you read through the New Testament, Paul gets opposed, the Jews don't like him, and it causes a fight. Um, and this fight, this is why Gallio was brought up, this fight escalated so much that the Jews were like, how can we silence this guy? Right? Especially because Paul's like, I'm a Jew. Right? There was no name called Christian. Right? And so the Jews were like, well, how, what can we do with this guy um, who claims he's one of us, but he's saying stuff that we don't agree with. So they're like, let's appeal to the law. Let's go to the civil courts. So they go to this proconsul in Corinth named, named um, Gallius. 
Gallio, sorry. Um, and they're going to him to say, here's a problem. Um, so what, what Paul was doing, so Judaism was legal. Okay, so what Paul was doing is that he was taking Jewish prayers and he was adding references to Jesus in them, equating him with God. And so then the Jews went to the government saying, this is now an illegal religion. Because in him putting in Jesus in these prayers, this is a different God now. So this religion isn't legal. This was a major issue for the early church. In some um, districts, they were allowed to keep practicing as Christians because the Romans were like, whatever, they're just some new kind of Jew. And in other places, they're like, no, this is something different. Should we let them practice or not? And so the Jews were going to the proconsul hoping that this was going to mean they couldn't practice. Unfortunately for them, Gallio just didn't care. Right? He was just like, you guys can fight. You do your thing. I don't care. Um, if you have some infighting in your little Jewish sex, you guys go play together in your sandbox. I don't care. Um, so that wasn't a happy thing for the Jews. Um, it was a great thing for Paul because he was able to practice in broad daylight. Right? So he didn't need to go undercover. He could do his thing. And that was, that was cool for Paul, who was used to being in, in trouble. <laughs> Um, so the church, because of this, ended up being made up mostly of Gentiles. But in the Corinthian context, we don't have this anti-Jew, anti-Gentile conflict. That's not going to be the conflict here. Um, so that's been some of the neg negative. But in, the, in, in, a, in another sense, the church in Corinth was a big success. Because it was made out of Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slave free, rich, poor. It was breaking all social boundaries. So in, 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 a, in a significant way, the Church of Corinth was also very successful. Um, now, churches in those days were held in houses because they couldn't go to the synagogues. Um, and so there may have been one house, as we'll see in chapter 14, or multiple. But it's also clear that they regularly all met together. Um, and that's going to be outlined by St. Paul. And when they met, it was for Eucharistic worship. And it was in a rich man named Gaius's house that Paul had baptized. And I'm mentioning that he's rich for a reason. So I want to get into some of the culture that particularly is going to raise its head um, in Corinthians. So the Corinthian letters are a prime example um, of the huge historical and cultural distance between us and the early church, okay? Because there's a lot of things that were, that were different that need to be understood. Um, these letters have a different world. Geography, language, social relationships, economic, religious context, like everything's happening somewhere. It doesn't happen in a bubble, right? Um, and so we already mentioned geography and trade, so I'm not going to go into that, but that was an important factor that we already vaguely touched on. Um, but sport and tourism are a big deal in Corinth. Um, every other year, Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games. <laughs> I hate that word because I can't say it. These were second only to the Olympic Games in size and significance. They were held every other year and everybody would come, right? So it was the golden time to preach because you had major tourism industry, right? Whenever the Olympics goes to a certain city, even though a lot of cities lose money on it, 
cities still bid for it because it does a lot of things with the local economy. It does stuff, right? And so Paul's capitalizing um, on this because it's, it seems that he was there for one of those events. Um, and... So beyond the games, because people would come in for the games, Corinth also became a place for the arts, right? So just like New York is famous in the way that it is, New York has Hollywood, right? So like it brings people in for different things. Why am I bringing that up? Because culture is a really big deal in Corinth, right? And so they care how sophisticated you are. Right? They care about, about these things a lot. Um, music, poetry, festivals. Um, and so Corinth was the hub for world-class entertainment. That's where you went for entertainment. And so that meant fast-paced business. Um, I just don't want to overdo some of these things. So I might skip some of this. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the arts part aside for now. So that was number one. Number two, wealth and relationships. Okay. So Corinth's prosperity naturally created extremely wealthy and influential individuals, including people in the church. And that wealth meant influence, especially in the ancient world. Right? We still accuse that of society today, but even more blatantly and clearly in the ancient world, right? where if you had money, you had sway. Okay? Um, and that might be hard for people to understand because there's an interesting context going on in Romans that some people today might feel uncomfortable with, even though it was completely normal back in the day. Um, and that's the, the, the concept of patronage. Okay? So... Um, patronage in the ancient Roman world was an essential part of life. Okay. So protection, employment, access to goods, everything depended on patronage. Okay. Um, the relationship between a patron and a client, that's actually where we get this concept from in modern language. It actually originates from the Roman times, um, is a relationship of a gift giver and recipient. And it was very well culturally defined at the time, um, even though the rules often went unspoken. And so there's this rule of reciprocity. There's a giver and there's a taker, and each has a role. Okay? The giver gives, but the receiver is loyal. Right? And the receiver does favors for the patron. Um, and a reception of a gift or a favor was not really without strings, even though it was pretended that it was. Okay? So there's also some literature that I'm not going to read that you can, that, that, that I was going to use, like Seneca, a very famous philosopher from that time, writes a lot about that. And he writes about rules of patronage and about how to be a good patron and how to be a good client. Um, so it was a very, very well-established cultural thing. Um, and patron-client relationships, with their delicate social etiquette, they're a really significant undercurrent in Paul's relationship with the churches and the people he's writing to. Um, 
wealthy Corinthians became public patrons. That meant they were probably sponsoring competitions. It meant they were probably sponsoring the celebrations, the festivities, the entertainments. And they would give these things as gifts to the population. Right? So actually, sometimes an emperor, if he was short on cash, would go to the patrons and say, can you guys help fund this event for the people? Right? Let's have a games for the gods. Let's have this live thing. Have the Colosseum games. Um, and now the city would become indebted to those patrons. Now they get favors. Why does this matter? On a whole bunch of levels. One, it appears that Paul was a client to certain patrons. Not just from this letter, but from others. Paul had some people sponsoring him. Right? Um, it also matters because the language of patron-client is going to be used actually in the relationship of the people to God. Where he's going to sometimes use analogies to say, try and understand this. Okay? And actually, more specifically, when he talks about grace in this letter, he's not always talking about the grace that we talk about in the 21st century. Right? In the 21st century, we're usually talking about grace to mean God's free gift to us, his death, then life-giving resurrection um, as an act of grace. Those are acts of grace. But actually, part of what St. Paul is talking about in this letter is about how we should respond to this gift that came from our patron, God, because he's using an analogy that they understand in their culture to say, would, would a client respond to a patron like this? Or would a client respond like this? So he's using it as an analogy to how we should respond to God a lot of the times in this letter and not to talk about um, the cross or resurrection and, and the more dogmatic things he was talking about in Romans. Um, because, again, modern Christians hear it very differently. Um, so here it's going to be re referring to the relationship between patient and client, a service to one in need, not in return for anything. Okay, that's what the grace part is. And that the return of a patron's grace should be loyalty. So Paul is going to be challenging a lot of their loyalty, saying, are you showing the right response to your patron? Are you loyal? Which is very similar to Romans. Are you faithful? Right? Or are you walking away? Next is the whole self-made Corinthians. Okay? The patronage system worked outside the church for social climbing. That was part of the point of it. But then what starts to happen is that the question started to be asked of, well, why not also use this system in the church to gain spiritual prominence? Paul is going to get into that right in the first chapters. Okay, of saying, you guys are messed up. Right, that you've brought your patronage system right into the doors of the church. Um especially, so now the reason I'm saying all that is to get a, a sense of it. We talked about this rich man that's hosting it, especially because the church often met in the house of rich patrons because they had the money and the wealth and the big houses to host everybody. So it made sense to be hosted in those homes. But the problem is that when, a people, when people enter in that home, they start thinking, oh... Like, I guess it's because he's rich. Um, aside, I didn't realize the acrosynth was right behind me in the picture, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so the gift of the Holy Spirit, grace, okay, 
this is where it's coming together, was not God's tool for self-promotion. Okay, but that's how they were seeing it, right? That they were viewing, okay, in the, so, in the secular world, rich people give gifts for promotion to set themselves up. And so they had started to be like, oh, does God give gifts for that? Right? And the answer is, is, is going to be a resounding, very angry no. Um, so rather than personal gain, the Corinthians should be striving for love. That's going to be the message that Paul is going to be giving. Paul's exposition of love is going to be one of the most epic, right? This is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, right? Of, of where he's going to say, no, you have no idea what this looks like. What you're doing is so messed up. What it should look like is this. Right, and that's why the 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 the, the core of First Corinthians thirteen is going to be, kill yourself, not self-seeking, self-giving. Right, and so that's that's going to be his response to that, that love can't be impatient, unkind, envious, arrogant, boastful, rude, etc., and that it shouldn't insist on its own way. Okay, um, but directly related to this is me Paul's concern when we get to chapter six where he's going to start talking about lawsuits against fellow believers, right? That that's going to become a major issue. We're going to get into what the issues are in the, just shortly. Um, and so he's, he's monumentally annoyed that these self-made Corinthians are using it in every single way possible and so nasty um, where nothing about this seems even remotely nice. Um, as messed up as it is, it's very comforting to know that humans were always humans in every century. And so there's hope for us. It's clear the church made it through. That's why we're here. Um, so the reality of societal structure built around wealth and privilege. And it was so hard to disengage that um, from the church. And I, and I want you to understand how real that is, right? That it's not just people being nasty, Right. Um, I served at a church, I won't say which one, I've served at many, where the congregation, there's only like 12 families. It's in a very remote place. Very, very, very remote place. So pretty much one family was paying for the whole church. Right? And as a result, because everyone knew that, right? Not because they walked around saying, hey, we paid. Everyone just knew because of how the social statuses were, were working. There was always this concern of, do they run the church because they're rich? Should they get more say in administration because of how much they pay? Do they have a bigger vote than the rest of the congregation? These are issues we still face today. These were the questions that were happening in the, Corinth, the church of Corinth, right? Of how much should their patronage be a big deal when we come together and worship? Um, and so this showed itself in something even uglier. Um, when the Lord speaks about um, when you enter someone's house, sit at the back, not at the front. He's referring to something very cultural that has a very literal meaning in the church of Corinth. What often happened in these rich homes is that there was this inner chamber for the elite. And the elite would recline. They would literally, it was called the tricinium. Okay, This had the better food. It had the better drink. And actually, people would recline. My priest in Kitchener, um, when he was translating the Igbeya, he had in it that they were reclining as they ate. And I laughed so hard, I thought he was like totally messed up. And I'm like, what do you mean reclining? Like they're lying down eating? And he's like, yeah. 
Um, and then like 10 years later, I'm like, oh, he's right. They did. Um, that, that's actually, in case you want to know, that's why St. John was leaning on the bosom of our Lord, which made no sense to me growing up because I'm like, that has got to hurt his neck <laughs> when he's just like, I'm with you, Jesus. <laughs> Tell me who it is. It's because they were actually reclining. They were lying down. And so it was like very close, intimate friends. And so actually St. John would be leaning against the Lord's chest, right? Um, and so the, the, the inner chamber was for these high status people. On the outside were your slaves, your freedmen, your lower status people. They got worse food, they got all of these things. This was happening in Corinth. So they'd go to celebrate Eucharist at these rich people's houses, and these wealthy patrons and cool, rich, successful people were on the inner chambers, and then the rest were on the outside. And, scandal upon scandal, it appears to be that some Corinthians might even have been getting drunk off of the blood of Christ. Um, they were pigging out, and St. Paul is like, what is wrong with you? Right? And so there's going to be a whole section about discerning the body, right? And about how you partake with the Eucharist, and about how wrong it is that they're treating these other people um, the way that the, the, the public does, right? So this social status thing is huge. It underlies everything, okay, in this letter. But part of this, this thing, this New York Cosmo type culture, is that rhetoric and sophistry were extremely valued. Really, really valued. And so the Corinthians actually didn't necessarily the high status like Paul. Because Paul wasn't eloquent. Right? So Paul seems eloquent to us when you read him in Old English, right? But Paul in first century AD is not eloquent, right? Paul's Greek even is this mix of, of sophisticated and extremely casual. Um, and so Abuna Joe is the expert on that. Um, and so Paul didn't care so for these schools of thoughts, sophistry, stoicism, and all that. He didn't care, Right? Whereas the, the, the Corinthians, the high-class Corinthians, they did, right? So it's almost like when you have like these so-called sophisticated dis discussions. I, when I was a pharmacist my last year of school, when we go to these networking dinners, that, that's what I picture, where everybody's sitting cross-legged with their cup of wine, and they're like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, I totally get you, you know, and what do you think of this postmodern idealism, right? And all these like really sophisticated things to say. Paul's like, I don't really care. Um, this is what it is. But the Corinthians, they cared. They thought Paul was lame, some of them, right? And so they were wanting somebody that could talk the talk. Um, and Paul was not necessarily one of those. Because Paul, as he's going to say, is, I'm not here to talk about me. I'm here to give you the gospel, Right. And I, I'm like I, the reason why I'm bringing up these issues is not just to understand it, but because these are very relevant today. Right. Where you have some people coming in and be like, so what do you think about theosis? No, no, no. Like specifically, like I would like to know what's your stance on this word. Right. And then another person's like, well, you know, I was reading about the apocatastasis. And as I was reading, um, I noticed that Julius of Harnassus did mention it just in passing. Um, I didn't have a chance yet to read, you know, the complete corpus of Evagrius, but I was trying to get there. And so then you've got this group that are, think they're elite, 
right? I'm not saying that anybody who says that is insincere. I'm just saying that there is elitism. And then you've got this other group of people who might be hearing it being like, I just love Jesus. Um, and then they have this anti-sophist um, point of view. And then we start creating factions in the church. That's what was happening, right? And so they were not comfortable. Um, and it's so similar to the 21st century. <laughs> it's, 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 it's weird. Um, and so what they cared about, the Corinthians cared about, these rich Corinthians cared about, was um, so precursor to, <laughs> to be a hypocrite, to postmodernism, okay? Because they cared about um, linguistics and influence and applause and power. They cared more that you sounded good than you be right. Okay, that was, that was what they cared about a lot more. And that's going to become an issue because of what is part of the conflict that Paul's dealing with Corinth was about his own self, rejection by his own people for not being something cool. So Paul comes to Corinth from Athens from what we now call the second missionary journey. Um, like we said, that's roughly the year 51-52. Um, we talked about social structures. We talked about guys. We talked about all that stuff that we just said. Um, it seems that Paul has written this letter from Ephesus, which we talked about in Romans was his main headquarters in the East. Um, and it's probably written about two years after because um, there's a whole bunch of events that Paul talks about that happened in, in the meantime. Um, he was staying there till Pentecost, which we just celebrated. And the two immediate causes that Paul identifies for writing the letters are a visit from Chloe's people, whoever Chloe is, um, but Chloe's someone from Corinth who's come and said, uh, yo, stuff has hit the fan um, in Corinth. Like, we, we, we need an intervention. Um, so they've come directly asking for that. And a letter had also been received by Paul from the, from the Corinthians that had questions and issues. And it was clearly a follow-up to his previous letter because he says that, as I previously wrote to you. Um, I wish we had that letter. Um, so, what are these problems that Chloe comes with? There are a lot of problems, <laughs> okay? Um, and we're not going to go into it hardcore because that's what we're going to be doing as we go through the epistle, but I want to name them because I want you to, to really... I, I'm excited about Corinthians. You might not be, but I'm super stoked because um, I want to know how he answers these things. Um, so, one of the major issues is loyalty. So, there's a big problem, about, which was a fight about who somebody was baptized by, right? So people who didn't like Paul were like, oh, you're from Paul. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're from Paul, right? And suddenly that was, that was lame. So when Paul left Corinth, an Alexandrian, shout outs to Egypt, um, named Apollos, um, he went to Corinth and apparently he was an amazing speaker. Not surprising. He's from Alexandria. That was a very sophisticated culture. So he would have been well-versed in the rhetoric and the sophistry and all those kind of things. So a lot of people loved Apollos, right? So he's got a pretty cool name too. Um, and so he goes there. Um, it appears that at some point, St. Peter might have as well. We don't know. It seems from the letter he, he may have. Um, and so the result is that there were groups of people affiliated with one another based on who taught them or baptized them okay so this was different schools today we still have this of like so what school of thought are you 
Are you at the like Pope Shenouda camp? Are you at the Bunametta camp? Um, are you more Macarian? Are you more Antonian? Um, are you like a leftist? Are you progressive? Right? We have all these labels. That's what they were doing. Right? And they were doing it now, they were doing it religiously. Um, and people consider themselves belonging to their leader and a disciple or servant to that leader. There was a major problem of personality cult. Okay, which is which is monumentally, I think, huge till this day in the church. Okay, um, so in addition to baptism, cultural and socioeconomic factors may have drawn people to one or another preacher. That's why we're talking about this sophistry and all of that of being like, oh, I like Apollos because he's more sophisticated, right? Whereas a, a, a lower class person might relate to Saint Paul more, right? And so a Jew might relate to Saint Peter more. Um, depending on, on, on where things stood. Um, so he wrote a letter, his previous letter, he apparently had told them not to associate with believers who engage in blatant sexual immorality. Um, and that also might have made some of them not like him because they didn't like his opinion. Second issue, not going to spend a long time on it, is lawsuits. Corinthians were taking each other to court. Okay. Um, third issue, which we touched upon already, sophistry and classism. Um, but I'm going to get a little bit more pointed here. So some people avoided the temples while others didn't care. Okay. And they'd appear to mock those who did care about associating with the temple, which, which we're going to see particularly in the issue of eating meat. We touched on that a little bit in Romans, but in Corinthians, it's an all-out fight, okay, about whether or not it's okay to, to be there. It's almost like today where people are like, what's the big deal if I have only secular friends or if I go to the club or if all of my friends are gay? I'm not trying to take a stance right now, but these questions are relevant, okay? These questions are relevant. Um, but this sophistry also caused disrespect of the Eucharist, where Eucharist became a dinner party for the wealthy, and the poor were left at the back as though unimportant. And those with the gift of tongues, which sometimes seems from the letter, might have seemed to be more among the wealthy, that was used to create classism too. Like, oh, you don't speak in tongues? Oh, maybe when you get more deep like me, then the Spirit will grace you. Okay, so for some reason, it's almost like how today people don't value the gift, the spiritual gift of comforting. That's a spiritual gift the way that they would, for example, of some saint reading someone's mind, right? Where they, we, we treat gifts as though one is better than the other, right? And so then we end up thinking that somebody's an elite class, right? That's what they were doing. There was moral scandal, and I mean moral scandal. We have some dude in the congregation who's sleeping with his stepmom. And the people of Corinth seem to either be totally cool with that or even... Um, approving it, which is messed up. Um, and so that becomes a major, major issue. They were, and they were, they were celebrating it. That's very relevant in the conversations we have today, for example, about, about sexual identity, right? About, about how Paul dealt with some of these things. And there was issue, excuse me, issues about sex and marriage that we'll get into. Theologically, there were some problems he doesn't spend a long time on it. He spends one chapter. 
um, that there were some people who denied resurrection from the dead. That's why on Easter we, we always read this passage for um, resurrection. Um, elitism, St. Paul just calls them puffed up. He says, you guys are full of yourselves. Um, and it seems like this small group of people that we've discussed a lot were the, were the ones that controlled the whole church. So there's also a discussion about who should control the church. Um, and they looked down, these elite looked down on those that disagreed, like they were prude, right? Or that they were dumb, right? They had this thing. I'm going to take off this background because it's getting darker. And so um, it's getting... It's making my, my face go in and out. Um, and so they were showing off the power of the Spirit, but not living in the way of the crucified Lord. Okay, And that's why St. Paul is going to tell them all. So all in all, there are social, sexual, spiritual problems. They're all mixed up, all causing division, mostly between the enlightened slash elite against the rest. Um, so St. Paul found out about these issues orally like the people who came to him, and in writing. He's writing from Ephesus, as we said, sending Timothy with the letter. He actually had wanted to send it with Apollos. I think probably to help, like, calm everything down. I was saying, well, here's Apollos himself. Um, for whatever reason, Apollos doesn't, uh, isn't able to do it. Um, and so, Paul's point will be, we're just going to say what Paul's point is, the structure, it will wrap up, and then next week we'll get into the letter. Paul's point is going to be, let everything be done in love. Love not being touchy-feely, oh, you're so cute, I like you. Love is not affection, love is not adoration, love is not any of those things. You can talk about what that love looks like, okay, that we need to do with each other in love. That in Christ, this is so important, we become re-socialized, okay? Which means that conversion is not a moment, it's a process of conformity to the crucified Christ. Where there's no such thing as class, and there's no such thing as gender, and there's no such thing as elitism. It is about a journey of being crucified with Christ. That is what it will mean to be con converted. And that's why it's a continual process. It is not this one moment thing. Um, the letter is subversive. Okay, he takes concepts and cultural things and totally turns them and flips them on their head. He's throwing out societal and cultural, um, even Christian status quos, and just completely throwing them out. Um, it's about holiness, participation in the life of Christ, the life of the Spirit, the life of God, and so importantly, the underlying theme in this crucified life is kononia community, living as one unit coming together, which is what Eucharist is. It's Eucharist um, at its finest. Eucharist as the actual body and bloody, body and, 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 and blood of the Lord and in, the, in the host, and Eucharist in the body, which is the whole people of God. It is incredibly powerful. Um, and it is the core of apostolic Christianity. Right to Eastern, Oriental, and Roman Catholics, all of us, there's no such thing as salvation without the whole. There's no such thing as personal salvation. 
right? We have to be discerning the whole body at all times, right? And that, that what you do as an individual affects the whole community. If one member is sick, everybody's sick. If, if your leg is crippled, the whole body walks slowly, right? And so this is core and fundamental to this letter. Um, it's kanunya, it's anti-schism, pushing towards conversion, holiness, and love. So he's going to be urging his readers that when living in a pagan world, this is why it's so relevant, because we live in a pagan world, okay? That living in a pagan world, they should see everything through the lens of Christ. He's teaching the Corinthians how to view the world. Rather than saying, here's the rule on every single action, he's saying, here's the rule of mind. That if you have been converted, if you are a Christian, here's how you think and how you think will show you how to act. And that's why it's immensely important. Because most Christians today are looking for a rule book and they're not looking how to think. Right? And so they're like, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? And that's why Paul's going to talk about what it means to be lawful. He's going to talk about what it means to be, to be everything to everybody. So the, the, the structure... There's two different ways to look at the structure of this letter. I'm going to look at one, two different ways of looking at it because I was reading one reference that I really liked what he did um, where he broke it down as one holy Catholic apostolic, which was really neat to me. Um, and so the first um, section um, is about the oneness of the church, about unity. Um, how do Christians preserve the unity? Uh, sorry, um, how to break down these divisions that are there. Holy, right, of what does holiness look like in Roman culture, in pagan culture, and in general, which is so relevant to us. Catholic or universal, small c Catholic, um, both in the sense of welcoming people of different degrees of faith, ethnicities, genders, socioeconomic status, positions, spiritual gifts, but also in the sense of being connected to the whole global church, because Paul will also ask them to care for other churches, not just their own. Okay, so he will talk about the Catholicity of the church in a very deep way. And then apostolicity, by Paul saying, imitate me, an apostle who knew Christ, right? Um, and adherence also to the apostolic faith, because he gets a little bit creedal in chapter 15, not for very long. Um, so that'll be chapters 1 to 4, 5 to 7, 8 to 14, and then 15. 16 is his goodbyes. Um, another way of looking at it is dealing with unity first, then dealing with sin, specific sin, then divorce, then the specific fights about doctrine. Um, then there'll be a whole section on problems with women and worship. That one's going to be fun and exciting, and I'm not looking forward to it because it's very touchy. Um, and there will be problems with spirituality, 12 to 14, and then the resurrection. Um, but what I hope, what I really hope that you'll be able to appreciate, um, Paul is writing this letter so passionately because of how close he was to these people. Right? Imagine if you're someone's godparent, because being a godparent is supposed to be a really big deal. Okay? And so imagine that you raise these people, you literally baptize them, you literally birth them in Christ. You gave everything in your life to them. Paul refused to take money from them so that there would be no sense of personal gain, even though I had every right. 
He wouldn't take money. He literally gave himself to them, right? Gave himself to them completely. And then he leaves and they're trash talking him. And then they're not only trash talking him, after 18 months work, they're going completely off, right? From, from the way that he said. And then he wrote to them saying, I beg you. And if you read Paul through his other letters, this one drives him crazy. Drives him crazy. It hurts him. He loses a lot of sleep over it. He's extremely restless over it. And actually, if you read his letters, there's a wonderful book. I really, 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 really recommend it um, called Paul, A Biography um, by N.T. Wright. Um, because he spends a lot of time on the Corinthian um, issue and where you see that Paul finally calms down when he when after first Corinthians things go well um, because they, they do come around in second Corinthians but he's literally a father like that's what I'm hoping you see in this that this is Paul's deep sense of fatherhood and this is his anguish over his child right he's not his concern is not of oh they don't like me oh they don't think I'm cool it's literally that it's like what wouldn't I do for you, my children? I, I, I die daily, right? And so even the response to this letter is horrible. It's horrible. Um, they basically send back saying, screw off. I don't know a polite way of saying it, pardon me. Um, and, and it hurts him even more. Right? Like he hears back like that, like that it really, really, really broke down. Right? And so he's, he's a dad lamenting over this. Um, eventually, thank God, the Corinthians do come back. So I'm going to skip this last part, but this is a letter relevant to us. Right? These are the same kinds of issues that we face today. Elitism, social classes, spiritual um, idolizations. Um, jealousy within the church, jealousy about spiritual gifts, how to respond as a Christian to a secular world, how, what is a proper way of incorporating secular thought, because he doesn't reject secular thought completely, but how do I live with secular thought in a Christian way, how do I interpret, how do I live, how do I respond, how do I think, um, what should a congregation look like if they're Christian, these are so relevant. Right? That I pray that the spirit of St. Paul um, be with us in our gathering, that he can give us um, his own advice on how to make this alive and relevant to us today. Um, and glory be to God forever. Amen. Any questions? That was meant to be background. We finished exactly one hour, which is good. Um, I also want to tell you, for those who might have been turned off by Romans, this one is not going to be hardcore on um, the doctrine of the, of the academic, quote-unquote, I don't like using that word academic, but of the intellectual doctrine, because Romans was trying to deal with, if, if you don't understand this doctrine, you're going to have these kind of fights, right? The fight between Jew and Gentile. Whereas Corinthians is saying... It's not enough to just have the intellectual. If you don't, if you don't live it, you're not a Christian. Sick buzz. Um, any questions, comments?
sweet. All right, guys. So starting next week, um, we shall get right into it. I don't know that we'll be doing a chapter week. I think some weeks might be joined and some not because he goes issue by issue. So we might treat it the same way. Um, and I, as usual, I would I would recommend to you all, if you can take even an hour out of your time, it won't take even an hour, I don't think, read the letter in its entirety in a row. Because a lot of the times when we read um, these things, um, what we what we do is forget that this is one long thing being said and we kind of break it up. So if you can read it in a row, you can read it the way that Paul was saying it. Um, and the other thing that I sometimes suggest to people, and it's, it's up to you with your comfort level, um, there are definitely some biblical translations that are better than others. That's, that's de facto like a, a thing. Um, sometimes what's helpful is to read it in multiple translations to kind of get a, a better sense of it, right? So that you can, you can figure out what's, what's going on. Because sometimes the single change of one word draws your attention to it. Um, someone's asking, what's a good way to follow along with you to make the best out of this book? Um, like I said, try and read it beforehand, um, the whole letter, and then also um, whatever we're going to be studying the following week um, so that you can already have it in your mind, maybe have some questions in, in, in advance um, about it. Um, the other thing that I would suggest, the way that I read, the, one of the ways that I read the Bible is to always in addition to asking what does this mean about God, what does it mean about me, and what does it mean about my relationship, I also always try and ask myself, how can I live this? Right? So I would try at the end of every single week to say, how can I put this into practice? Um, I will try and at the end of every single week say, here's a way we can live this, so that, like more deliberately. I try and do that regularly, but maybe more deliberately. And then I would suggest try living that and then coming back with a discussion. That way this doesn't become just an academic exercise, but also a good spiritual exercise for us on how we can learn to live scripture together because it's not enough to read the Bible. We have to live the word of God because when we live it, this is how the Holy Spirit interacts with us. All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, hear us through the intercession of the prayers of the Holy Mother, Theotokos, St. Mary the Great, St. Anthony, St. Pope Carlos, and Mary Mina. We pray with all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but those from evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, the communion and get the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all.